I, uh, I sure wish we had a worship pastor that could sing, don't you guys? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I remember one of the first times I heard Troy uh, sing when he was in Pennsylvania, I thought, wow, he's a very, very, very gifted man, and if he could uh, lead anywhere close to how he sings, he's our guy, and he does, and so he's been a huge uh, blessing to our church. That's great. All right, we're going to dive into the Word right now, so would you bow with me and let's uh, pray. Father, uh, we do thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, and as we're going to see today, Lord, as we uh, unpack a bit of your word, how your grace has allowed us to have rights and privileges that we can all relate to in being called your children. And so, God, I pray that as we unpack that a bit today, that at the very least you might encourage us, for those of us who are followers of, uh, followers of your son Christ, and Lord, for all of us, would you um, challenge us as well, and may we uh, rise up uh, to the great calling and privilege we have in being your children. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's something that all of us can relate to, every one of us who are listening here today. And it's the whole idea that as you're going along in life, there are certain times where a, a new relationship comes your way, a, a rather important relationship, but we might not realize how important it is until that relationship it is fully involved in our lives, and then we realize what a game changer that relationship has become. So if you've ever gotten married, you've experienced that one. I, I, I mean, marriage in both challenging ways and obviously highly encouraging ways is the kind of relationship in which you enter into, and your life will never be the same anymore. I mean, the two becoming one flesh, it's now a different thing for the rest of your life. Or maybe you've had kids. If you've had kids, you know that those are the kinds of relationships that come into your life that change everything. But we've had some staff recently here at our church that have recently had one, two, three, four, even some five kids in like a six-year period. And their lives have changed dramatically by the nature of having children and even lots of children. Maybe it's a new business partner. Maybe it's a new best friend. Uh, lots of different relationships that you and I have in which they're the kind where when they come into our lives, things change. And if you can grab onto this concept at all, then you're ready to understand the next thing that we want to look at in this series that we started last summer called I Am as we're taking a look at what Romans says about our identity and who we are as followers and believers in Jesus Christ. Because what Romans is going to tell us here next is something core to our identity, and that is that once Jesus Christ enters into our lives, there's some things that immediately, de facto change about how God sees us and our relationship with him. In other words, the inclusion of this relationship is an absolute game changer. And get this, the things that have now changed by you and I being believers in Jesus Christ, the things that are now different about us are true regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you think, as we're going to see today, even regardless of how you act, the things that I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks are things that God now declares are true about you and me simply by being what the Bible calls in Christ. Now, the Bible uses that phrase, often the phrase in Christ. 
And simply for those who have become followers of Jesus Christ, God now says you are in Christ. And there are certain things that he now says are true about you and me simply by being in Christ. And those are the things that we're going to unpack here over the next few weeks. And get this, realizing these profound things that God says are now true about you and me as followers of Christ, and then being able to practice them are the keys to making the Christian life work. It's true. Many people ask me quite often, what do I need to do as a follower of Jesus Christ to make my Christian experience all that it can be? That's what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks here at your church. And so between now and mid-December, as we nudge up against Christmas, we're going to take a look using the book of Romans and finish out these I am statements, what are true about you as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first one today I've entitled I am adopted. Great, perfect Sunday for this, given the fact that this is Adoption Awareness Sunday. But we're going to look at it more from the fact between you and God and the fact that he now has adopted you in Christ. So here's our main point, enough introduction. Here's the main takeaway that you need to get out of today's look, and that is that in Jesus Christ, you are now a highly valued child of God. It's true. In Jesus Christ, simply by being a follower of him, God now considers you a highly valued child of himself. And some of you are thinking, well, Jamie, could you have more of a vanilla main point than this? I mean, a highly valued child of God, like, duh, what's that about? Well, this might seem vanilla to some of you, but I'm telling you, this has teeth, it has grit. This is a profound statement and truism that the scriptures tell us here. This idea that in Christ, we are now his children. So, if you brought a Bible with you today, let's unpack this a little bit. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 15, we're going to read just two verses, verses 15 and 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, I have the scripture up here on the screen as well for you. Dial into this, Romans 8, verse 15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, to best understand what it's saying here, I want you to notice two key principles that this passage teaches you and I here. They're not in your notes, but you can look up here on the screen for these. Two key things it's telling us that are true about us as followers of Christ. And here's the first one. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God now considers you his child. And that's clear what this is saying. Verse 15 says, The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit, small s, that spiritual side of us, that we are children of God. I love it. The Holy Spirit, whom the Bible says literally lives in those who are followers of Jesus Christ, now bears witness to each of our souls and spirits that we are a child of God. So part of the Holy Spirit's job is to affirm to you and me, each of us individually, to literally breathe to our spirit that we are a child of the Father. That's part of the Holy Spirit's role, that we are God's children now, included in his family through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so potent, if not even somewhat tricky, is that in light of our culture today, this is kind of a bold, if not 
cutting against the grain kind of statement. I don't know if you've heard it or not before, but it's very vogue in today's culture to say that everyone, all of humanity, are God's children. You've heard people say that before. People kind of view humanity today as sort of one big happy family with God being the father of all. And so you hear people say, whether it's civic leaders or business leaders or public speakers or politicians, they'll say, we are all God's children. And though that sounds so nice, it's not technically true. There's actually more to it than that. So let's unpack this in a minute. You know, when I hear people say that we are all God's children, my initial response, to be totally fair, is it depends on what you mean by that. In other words, if what you mean is that everybody is loved by God and valued by Him as His creation, then that is certainly true. And if that's what you mean by being all God's children, I'm with you on that. God does love all people. He has created all of us in his image. He values us as his creation, and he desires for all people to be in relationship with himself. That is patently true in the Bible. But having established this, isn't it interesting that the Bible reserves the actual designation child only for those who have come home to God through faith in Jesus Christ, for those that have an eternal relationship with Him. That's a very important distinction. It makes a distinction between those created by God, which is everybody, those loved by God, which is everybody. Uh, God values all of His creation, but it makes a distinction between that and those that God calls His children, which are those who have come home to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Folks, one of the things that is true about you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, is that God clearly and inarguably calls you his child. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, he's going to treat you as such with all the privileges as well as the expectations and responsibilities that go along with that. But before we get to that, let's answer one more question, and that is, how, how is this so? I mean, wh- why is it that God would call some people as children and other people as creation, and what's that all about? Well, with, with sin as the background, sin that separates us from God, here's the second thing that Romans 8 is affirming to us. Look up here on the screen, and that is that in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted by God because of Jesus. This is very important for you to see. The reason that God doesn't call all people his children is because only in Christ does God deal with our sin problem that separates us from God as his creation. And now in Christ, the Bible affirms that God has adopted people back into his family. Look at verse 15. It says, but as a Christian, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Fascinating. That, that word adoption there is the Greek word huithesia. It's used five times in the New Testament, and it means exactly what the interpretation is here, the translation is. It literally means to be adopted. You see, 2,000 years ago, back in Palestinian culture, they had adoption back then just like you and I today where a child would be without parents either because of death or inability to care or maybe not even wanting the child. And so what do you do in a culture when you have a child like that? Well, they would place that child 
back then into a loving family in which then that family would take that child to be their own just as much as the natural kids with all the rights and privileges of a natural child. Please see, that's what adoption is. It's when a loving parent takes a child who is not biologically their own and yet grafts or adopts that child into their family as their own. And both in the Palestinian world back then, and even so today, as we saw with our video, the way it's supposed to work is that the adopted child is just as much a part of the family, just as much a child as the natural ones with all the rights and privileges associated with it. So when he uses this word adoption there, that's the picture on a spiritual level God wants us to have. That we were runaway kids, we're not natural kids, we're his creation, but we're not a part of his family from birth. There's too much sin and garbage that gets in the way of a holy God. But because of what Christ did, he now has adopted us back into his family with all the rights and privileges, just as if we were natural children ourselves. And the reason this is so powerful, folks, is that you and I both know that when we get a glimpse of adoption this side of heaven and see it work right, it is the most beautiful and powerful thing we could almost ever see this side of heaven. Adoption really is an awesome thing. About a decade ago in my last church in Cleveland there, I was off one Sunday, but my brother Pete, my little brother Pete, uh, was coming to visit from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I, and I wanted him to experience my church. So we decided to slip into the church and hear the guest speaker in kind of the back there, and, and, uh, and, and he and his family slipped in with me to hear the speaker in this church about, again about a decade ago. And Peter had just adopted two or three years earlier a little girl from South Korea whose name is Mia, and it was really fun to be with Mia and connect with her. Then Peter has two other natural children, older than Mia. And so there we all were in the pew there and uh, listening to church. And because I wasn't speaking, at one point, little three-year-old Mia fell asleep right there in the pew and, uh, and, and, and just fell, fell asleep. And as she was starting to go down, I thought she might want to lay on Uncle Jamie's lap or maybe on Aunt Kim's lap, but... No, she wouldn't have any of that. Look at the picture here. She went down in the pew there. She went right down on my brother's lap. It's a little bit of a grainy picture there because for those of you who are tech people, this was taken with a Palm Pilot back then. Remember those? So a little Clea Palm Pilot. But I snapped a picture there because I got to tell you, for the last few years before that, every time Pete had visited me and, and I had seen his interaction with Mia, it would almost bring me to tears. Because Mia, who was born in South Korea and was in a family that could not raise her, was adopted by Pete and Lori when she was six months old. She was just a little baby. And yet she had taken to their family like fish to water. I mean, it was just, she would just, from the moment she could speak, Pete was dad, Lori was mom. And I just loved hearing her call them mom and dad. When she would want to fall asleep, she'd fall asleep in her father's lap. And up to that point in her life, she knew no better. This was her family. Pete and Lori were her parents, and it made no difference at all. She was a full part of this family, and now a part of the extended family with Kim and I. 
And it's interesting. I know sometimes adoption can be very difficult. And as the kid grows and they start to realize that they're adopted and that there are things called birth parents and now adoptive parents and they can feel kind of distant now from their adoptive parents. As we've watched Mia, it's been none of that at all. In fact, on vacation this past summer, we were in northern Michigan, all of us together, and I came out one morning, and Pete and Mia were on the dock just sitting there looking at the sunrise, and I snapped this picture of them as I came out that day. And Mia is just as happy, and she's saying, I'm on the dock with my dad, and isn't this wonderful? The only thing I laugh about this picture is that my brother's looking older and more tired, isn't he? Like I said to him later, I said, yeah, it's obvious you're a father of three teenagers. I can tell that. But he's happy too. And it's just amazing to see little Mia grow up in this family. As a quick side note, we had a couple from our church with us on this vacation, Corey and Gail Schutnick, and their grandparents, and their kids are grown and out of the house. This is what you look like when your grandparents on vacation, isn't it? <laughs> I said this to my brother. I said, now, now that's what you have to look forward to. That's serenity right there. I said, hang in there. I, I think you guys get the idea that, that when God adopts us into his family, it, it can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Give me another click here, guys, of exactly what we see even here on earth. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God now says, I've adopted you. I declared you my kid with all the rights and responsibilities that would go to any natural child. And, and real quickly, before I move on, as I said earlier, this is true for you. Personalize it here today simply by you being in Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are now part of his family and nothing can change that. Nothing can take it away. Let me be clear, not your bad days, not your bad feelings, not you wandering off and going your own way, not your doubts, not your fears, not even your sin can change that any more than your kid could ever become not your kid, which can't happen, by the way. You cannot be unadopted by God. That's how secure you are in Jesus Christ, and that's how powerful this idea of God adopting you as his child is. And maybe now this will make sense. This is why God says, not all humanity are my children. All humanity are loved by me, valued by me as their creation. All humanity, I want to come home to me. But only those who come home to God through faith in Jesus Christ are now his children. And that's going to stay that way, God says. Once you're his child, you're always, always his child valued by him with all the benefits, rights, and responsibilities of being his kid. Now, some of you have been listening very closely here this morning, and you have noticed rightly that I keep saying, and this is by design, that though it's awesome that you are a child of God and Jesus Christ, that there are benefits and responsibilities to being so. How many of you have heard me say that just a few times here today? For those of you who didn't dial into that, you're going to want to right now. Because there are some benefits and responsibilities to being a child of God. Remember I said in the introduction, when you have a new relationship, it's very much a blessing, but it's also very much a challenge, right? Whether it's a new marriage, a new business partnership, a child that comes into your life, there's great joy, but there's also great challenge. Same with God. So what are some of the things that the New Testament tells us 
are now benefits and responsibilities of being a child of God. Here's the first one. You now have an intimacy and a familiarity with God as Father. And this is obviously one of the benefits. But you don't want to overlook this one. Look again at verse 15. We skipped something earlier that some of you noticed that we skipped. It says in verse 15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now here it is. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, it, it, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you kind of just fly by certain phrases that you don't fully understand, but in a quiet time or whatever, whenever you're in the Bible, you just sort of move on and say, maybe I'll try to get that later. Maybe you don't even realize you don't understand it. I got to tell you, when the Romans in Rome were first reading this letter from St. Paul 2,000 years ago, and he got to this point where he said that you have the chance to call God Abba, at the very least, they would have gasped. At the very most, they would have almost been offended. Why? You see, back in Jewish culture, 2,500 years ago, they knew this phrase, Abba. It's an Aramaic phrase. And the best translation to this phrase would be Daddy or Papa. It's a very endearing, very familiar phrase that one would use to refer to your father this way. So just like you and I have the phrase, Father, and then we have the phrase, Daddy, one being formal, one being very familiar and intimate. They had that in Jewish culture, too, in Greek culture. So you had pater, which is Greek for father, but then Abba, which literally meant Papa or Daddy. And here's the deal. We have no uh, evidence at all that the Jewish people ever thought it was appropriate to call God Abba. Not at all. There is no record at all of them ever using this word to refer to God this way. That would be way too informal. That would be way too familiar. And so when Paul the Apostle comes along and says, you can call God Abba, that was like a game changer for them back then. And guess what? Jesus did the same thing. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was in the garden, Remember that? And he's sweating blood and he knows he has to go to the cross and he's communing with God the Father. He says in verse 36, Abba, all things are possible for you. So possible may this cup pass from me. Jesus used that familiar phrase, Abba. And again, some people say, well, gosh, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Of course he can call God that. But that's not what that's about. No, God says all people who follow Jesus now get to call God Abba. And the implications of this are profound. It means that nothing, and I mean nothing, can and should ever get in the way of you and I having intimacy with God. Now as a highly valued child of God the Father, you have unhindered, unblocked, unrestrained access to God. Not just formal access, like when you come to church and do good things and use these and thous and things like that. But you have Monday through Saturday unrestrained access to God, whether you're watching TV, driving down the road, going to bed, rising, doesn't matter where you are, you have access to Him through constant prayer, worship, being in His Word. You have access to God. You have the right to call Him Abba, your Father. 
And so nothing can or should ever get in the way of our intimacy and our open-door connection with Him. That's the practical outpouring. Not of you just being a child of God, but of you now having such familiarity with Him that you can call Him your dad. That's what the Bible is affirming here. Now let me ask you a leading question. Though it sounds so good on paper to say that we all, as followers of Jesus, have unrestrained access to God, is that always our experience? Yes or no? No. So, so let's wrestle with why that is. I, I mean, if this is the greatest news to ever hit planet Earth, that you and I have unfettered access to God the Father, so much so that we have power by the Spirit, we have love and grace available to us each moment of each day, then what keeps some of us from availing ourselves of this. I, I made a list years ago, at least for me, that keeps me from availing myself of this. The first one is busyness. Can you relate? You know what I learned years ago, early on in my marriage with Kim? Busyness is an enemy to intimacy. See, I don't think most Americans get that, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Busyness is never a friend to intimacy. You can never have an intimate relationship with somebody if you are always on the go and you never slow down to be with them, can you? We've all learned this in marriage. You try to have a marriage in which you're constantly on the go, never communicating, never listening, never slowing down to be with the other person, you won't have a marriage very long. And yet, that's the way many of us treat God. We watch a lot of TV. We might even go to a few Bible studies. We're engaged in the business world, engaged in the education world, engaged in our own world. we got our hobbies. We're, I mean, we do a lot of responsible things. But when do we ever slow down and just get intimate with God? And, and you know, even, even our whole devotional life here in America, I think, is, is good, but in many ways it's anemic. i, I got to tell you guys, I've said this before, I have a love-hate relationship with that little devotional called The Daily Bread. I, I like how one pastor, he calls it the daily crouton. And I think that's kind of a, actually a pretty good description of it. And, and don't get me wrong, some of you are going to get very offended that I just picked on your daily crouton. But let's call it what it is. And, and, and I've read the daily bread for years, and I think we provide it, and I like it, you know, and all that stuff. But, but it really is a daily crouton. And what scares me about it is that some of us rely on that to be the extent of our intimacy with God. And I picked up on that right away when I first became a Christian. It, it goes like this. You wake up in the morning, you carve out 10 minutes to be with God, and you, you read the little passage up there, and then you read the, the description, then you read the prayer, and it's just wonderful. Next. And then before you know it, you're off on your way. Honestly, if it was a meal, it'd be just like popping a crouton. That's why I think he calls it that. And, and the reality is, is that that is a busy American Western lifestyle, just trying to fit God in a little bit in the midst of all of your busyness, and then we wonder why we don't have intimacy with him? If you treated your marriage like the daily bread, it would be a mess, wouldn't it? If you treated your marriage like, you know what, honey, I give you 10 minutes tonight just to tell me about your day. 10 minutes just to tell, me, tell you how things went, and you know what, even in that 10 minutes, I'll tell you about mine too. We'll have our nice little community together for 10 minutes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, that would be awful. That, that wouldn't be a marriage, but we sometimes think that's the way it should be with God. Now, the only way we're going to develop intimacy with God is to realize the pathway that you have with him, carve out big space to be with him, and then be with him. I think another thing that keeps some of us from having intimacy with God is feelings of rejection or inferiority. This is big for some of us. 
We grew up in homes in which intimacy was never known. So when we even hear that we have access to God, there's just something that screams in us that he doesn't want to be with us. Whether it was an overbearing father ourselves or maybe a bitter divorce we've been through or whatever, we just have trouble believing that God would actually love us that much. But here's the deal. Get with him. Read his word. Get with other believers who know him. Spend a lot of time there and you will start to realize that that's just so not true. That God, your heavenly father, thinks about you differently than anybody ever has. I love how Romans will cap off this chapter that we're in. We'll look at it later where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is nobody. God is for you. The only way you're going to break through those feelings of shame and inferiority are to spend time with him. I like how John Bradshaw said it years ago. He said, shame cannot stand to be spoken. We got all this shame inside of us, but get along with God, confess it before him, speak your shame, and watch it dissipate. But many of us haven't even taken the step to do that. And then I think a third thing that keeps some of us from intimacy with God, and I think some of us just have to own this today, is apathy. I just think we're lazy. I I, I do. I I have a pastor friend of mine who I love deeply, and, 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 you know, he says out of all the sins that pastors deal with, his is definitely the sin of apathy. He says, you know, I, I can watch six episodes of Law and Order in a row, and I don't feel guilty for it at all. And it's a bold statement for this pastor to make, but I appreciate his honesty. For him, his thorn in the flesh is just the fact that he loves to be lazy. And the reality is, I think some of you, some of us might be able to relate to that. I I mean, the simple answer to us is just to repent of our laziness and start engaging God as a child of his and spend more time with him. You're his child adopted in Jesus Christ, and you now have an intimacy and a familiarity with God as your Father, untouched in the history of the world and unmatched by any other relationship that you have. Now, more quickly, notice me a second implication the Scriptures tell us of you and me being a child of God. And this one's going to be, again, a little bit hard-hitting for you, but now we get to the responsibilities component of this, and that is that you can now live and act as a true child of God. You know, it's fascinating. For those of you who care, when you, uh, when, when you take this word child in the New Testament, and especially the phrase child of God, and you do a study of it, where you look at all the occurrences of the phrase child of God, and then look at the context as to what it expects of you as a child of God, because it appears about a dozen times, you start to see things like this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So you're a child of God, now imitate him. Or Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know that was written to a church. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent. Here it is, children of God. Isn't that interesting? Blameless and innocent, children of God. Then look at 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 15. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Guys, you can't miss it. Over and over again, the scriptures say part of what it means to be a child of God is not just that you have intimacy with him, though you do, but now flowing out of that intimacy, he expects you to walk worthy. 
He expects you to be the kind of child that is obedient and faithful and stays close to him and that it will show in your actions. And I think that's something that more Christians need to see today. Simply put, you're a child of God, so act like one. And, and, and I know that we don't say this to our kids anymore because it's kind of shaming, but at least in the world I grew up in, when I was acting out, you know what sometimes my dad would say to me? You're my son, now act like one. I never hear parents say that anymore, do you? And, and again, I've never seen a kid acting out in McDonald's and somebody saying, you know what, you're my kid, act like one. They don't do that anymore. But you know what, God does look at us like that. And quite frankly, it used to work really well for me when I was a kid. The fact that you tie the fact that you are a son or a daughter and that there are certain expectations that go with that. And God says to you and me, we're his children. And more so than ever, in light of a fallen world that doesn't know Jesus, he wants us to act like his children. To be on our best behavior all the time. And you know what's so cool about this point? Because I know some of you think you're feeling all the pressure right now and you're thinking of all the things you messed up. Here's the deal. He would not ask you to be an obedient child if you couldn't do it. Amen? That's the cool thing. My gosh, you got the Holy Spirit living in you. Ephesians 1.3 says, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is now yours. Ephesians 6 says, Man, you got a whole arsenal at your disposal of righteousness and faith and the body of Christ and prayer and the Word of God. I mean, God would never ask you to do something you couldn't do. So he says, yes, one of the responsibilities of you being my child is that you act like one, but you can do that because you got Holy Spirit power behind you. So engage with God, be intimate with Him, and then start acting like His child. And then a third responsibility and privilege, and I love this one, of being in his family or being his child, is that you now are part of a huge family of other highly valued children of God. And obviously I'm talking about the church, the church universal. One last scripture, John 11 verse 52 says this, it says, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's talking about the gospel here. So when Jesus came and brought the gospel, it was to gather into one all the children of God. Jesus would go on to elaborate in John 17, this in his high priestly prayer, where he would say, I pray, Father, that they may be one, just as we are one within the Trinity. I pray that they may be one, so that the world would know that you have sent me. So being a child of God is not just an individualistic endeavor. No, it's a community thing in which the Bible says you're now a part of a big family with a bunch of other adopted kids. And it's called the church. And we have a responsibility to each other and a commitment to each other. Simply put, this is why church can never be a place where somebody walks alone. The church must always be a place where people walk with each other and care for each other. And that's why when I see this happen at Scottsdale Bible Church, I, I, I'm never more proud than when I see people loving each other, laying down their lives for each other, caring for each other. That's why we do all the service things that we do, whether it be giving away shoes, food, turkeys, water, clothing, money, because we know that through that kind of sacrifice and generosity, we have the ability to show that we're part of a bigger family, a family that cares for each other and even cares for those that aren't yet kids, but that we want to become a part of this adopted family. And that's what the church is. So maybe today adds a little bit more meat to this whole idea of a child of God. 
Maybe next time you hear somebody say in culture, you know, that we're all God's children, you, you might be able to, to weigh in a little bit more heavily on that issue by helping us understand, what, helping people understand what it really means to be a child of God. It, it happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And when it happens, you're now in. You're adopted. And it can never be taken away. You can now have intimacy with God. You can obey Him and follow Him. And you're part of a huge family that's going to love you now through anything and everything. Let's go to the table and pray. Father God, I thank you that once again the scriptures come along and help guide us in a right, wonderful, life-giving understanding of you. And so, Father, I pray that as we pick up the ball again and start running with this I Am series uh, out here in Romans, that God, you might continue to help us understand you and your kingdom in much deeper and richer ways. Father, as we've taken a look at the adoption theme today, next week we move on to chosenness, that we've been chosen by you. And God, what a beautiful picture that will be. So Father, just bolster our faith, strengthen us as we study these things. Father, I pray that as we go to the table now that, God, we might be able just to apply immediately all that we've been learning here today, that we would realize that this table is all about inclusion and adoption and love and grace and certainly sacrifice. That as Jesus gave his life for us, that's what's opened the door so that we might know you. So as we hand out, Lord, the bread and the juice now, Father, may we worship you during this time. And as we eat together, Lord, here in a few minutes, may you be honored and glorified as we focus upon you in a continued act of worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.